Thank you for that, Jar Jar Binks. You are indeed listening to Behind the Lens. And for those of you that are living under a rock somewhere and don't realize what day this is, it is December 11th, and on December 15th, Star Wars, The Last Jedi, hits theaters. So this is this is an exciting week for everybody out there uh, who is as anxious to see Star Wars, The Last Jedi, just for... The movie itself, but also so many people, Carrie Fisher's final performance. So I can't wait. Um, opens on Friday. I'm actually screening it tonight. Um, but I'm embargoed, so you won't hear anything from me for a little bit about it. But uh, I can't wait. I know tickets, advanced ticket sales are already going through the roof. Um, but you know it's going to be an absolute extravaganza. So, welcome to Behind the Lens. Uh, we are almost done for the year. I can't believe it. Um, today is a big... I'm Debbie Elias, creator and host of Behind the Lens. Uh, film critic, you can find my movie reviews and interviews 24-7 on BehindTheLensOnline.net and numerous other places around the globe and print and online. But every Monday, you can find me right here live on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with uh, filmmakers, craftsmen, artisman, uh, artisans, and fill you in on what makes a movie. Today, we're really going to have fun talking about what makes a movie because at the midway point of the show, we have an incredible writer-director, uh, a gentleman that I got had the pleasure of meeting for the first time with his first film, Dead Man's Burden, a few years ago at L.A. Film Festival. He is back again now with another Western, The Ballad of Lefty Brown, starring none other than Bill Pullman, Peter Fonda. Uh, so we've got some Western heritage there. Uh, it is Jared Moshi who is with us at the halfway point. And for all of you directors out there and you cinephiles, I got to tell you, Jared is a purist. Shot this in Super 35 with natural light. So, and showcasing some of the most beauteous parts of America to represent the Old West uh, that we've seen in a while. So I can't wait to have him on the show to talk to him. But before we get to him, I've got some exclusive interviews we're going to get to after we talk about, for a couple minutes, the 75th Golden Globe nominees announced this morning. Um, big news for The Shape of Water, which I know many of you haven't seen yet. I know my sound engineer, Pam, is saying, I haven't seen that much. Where is it? What is it? It's coming. It's filtering your way. It is flowing your way to theaters. And I can't encourage you highly enough to go see it. It is amazing. It is from the master himself, Guillermo del Toro, uh, stars Sally Hawkins, Octavia Spencer. Um, 
Richard Jenkins, Octavia, Sally, and Richard all picked up Golden Globe nominations this morning, as did Guillermo. Seven noms altogether for Shape of Water. Absolutely amazing film. See it, see it. Other Best Picture uh, nominees this morning for the Golden Globes. And remember, the Golden Globes break things into drama and comedy or musical. So their Best Picture dramas, Call Me By Your Name, which also picked up multiple Independent Spirit Awards as well, uh, nominations as well as already some Guild Awards out there. Dunkirk, uh, The Post, which isn't coming out for a couple weeks, um, but it is the story of The Washington Post, Kay Graham, Ben Bradley, and The Pentagon Papers. Uh, you may have heard me mention a couple weeks ago my interview with the documentary filmmaker John Maggio, and we talked about his documentary, The Newspaper Man, The Life and Times of Ben Bradley. This is a perfect twofer, perfect companion pieces, uh, because we get the documentary that tells us all of the story of Ben Bradley and Ben Bradley's own words, and focusing a lot heavily on the JFK years and his relationship with JFK, and then a lot on Watergate, which is just mirrors what's happening in the political situation, political arena today. The Post covers really covers that era of the Pentagon Papers, which falls in between there, uh, with ben, in Ben Bradley's timeline. So that I'm not surprised by, and. Of course, rounding out the fifth drama is Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri from Martin McDonough. It is another, as comes as no surprise from McDonough, it is fabulous. The best actress race this year with the Globes and with the Oscars, I think it's going to boil down to Sally Hawkins in The Shape of Water and Frances McDormand in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Three Billboards also, Sam Rockwell got a nomination uh, which I'm not surprised by, and I think he is our front runner uh, come Oscar time as well. Other Go- Golden Globe nominees for Best Picture, Comedy or Musical, The Disaster Artist with James Franco. James Franco is Franco is Franco and is fabulous. Get Out, The Greatest Showman, embargoed on it, but suffice to say, I am beyond thrilled to see it get nominations with the Golden Globes this morning. And after screening the film, I immediately went to Amazon and ordered the soundtrack because it is amazing. I, Tanya, the uh, fictionalized of the story of the not-so-fictional story of Tanya Harding. Uh, it is hilarious. It is great. Allison Janney, Margot Robbie, they both picked up nominations. Uh, as well as this best picture, and of course, Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig's directorial. Uh, surprising, big snubs. Wonder Woman got nothing. The big sick, the big sick, which everybody has been touting all summer long. They were snubbed. Uh, Greta Gerwig herself. You know, we had some great women directors this year. Greta Gerwig with Lady Bird and Dee Reese with Mudbound. Two of them, neither one got nominated uh, with a Golden Globe. Also, Jordan Peele, who directed Get Out, no nomination. I think the most one of the biggest surprising acting uh, snubs for in film, Noah Nett Benning for Film Stars Don't Die in, Liver- in Liverpool. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with the Globes on January 7th at 5 p.m. Pacific time, coming live from the Beverly Hilton, as usual. So... 
Of course, some of the great races to look for will be the best actress. Uh, the best actor, we're going to have Hugh Jackman and James Franco going up against each other in a musical or comedy. Uh, we're going to see in musical and comedy, Judy Dench and Helen Mirren are going to go. The veterans are going to go up against Margot Robbie, Saoirse Ronan and Emma Stone. Um, very exciting is Christopher Plummer. The last-minute replacement for Kevin Spacey and All the Money in the World picked up a Best Supporting Actor nomination, Golden Globe nomination this morning. That, I think, is a surprise. Willem, uh, Willem Dafoe, Army Hammer, Richard Jenkins, and, of course, Sam Rockwell. Supporting Actor is a very tight category. And, of course, as is Supporting Actress, Mary J. Blige picked up a nom for Mudbound. Uh, Allison Janney got, picked one up for I, Tanya, Laurie Metcalf for Lady Bird, and Octavia Spencer for Shape of Water. Of course, our animated Golden Globe nominees, uh, Boss Baby, The Breadwinner, which we've talked about uh, briefly on Behind the Lens. Coco, you've all seen the TV ads. You've all seen my poll quotes. You all know my love for Coco. Coco is still, in my book, the best animated feature of the year. Uh, also, Ferdinand, which is coming out shortly. Ferdinand picked up a Best Animated Film nomination, as did Loving Vincent. So, sit tight till January 7th for the Golden Globes. Um, it's going to be a fun ride. And when all these films come out, please, Shape of Water, uh, please see it. The Greatest Showman, you have to see it. Um, you know, there's so many good films that are actually out there. But, you know, we're going to talk about... The Ballad of Lefty Brown, I'm still miffed that Bill Pullman has not received any nominations anywhere for his performance as Lefty Brown, but we're going to talk to Jared about that at the half, at the midpoint. But right now, we're going to talk Shape of Water. I have been doing below-the-line interviews with the craftsmen below the line on the Shape of Water. Uh, among them, Louis Segura, who's the costume designer, Dennis Berardi, the VFX supervisor, Shane Mahan, the project supervisor, and one of the co-creature creators, Mike Hill, creature, uh, creature designer and sculptor, uh, Dan Lawson, cinematographer, and Paul Osterberry, who is the production designer. Expect to hear these names come Oscar nomination morning because their work is exemplary. They are the cream of the crop with the shape of water. Um, when I was asked to describe the, the, the film and what I thought of it, it is visually beauteous with haunting ethereal.ism There's a languid beauty. It, it there's it's sensual, essentially anticipatory. There's essentially anticipatory edge to it. It is just magnificent. Uh, it is a little bit sci-fi, a little bit thriller, and a lot of romance. And it's a perfect combination for what the movies were originally made for: escapism and fantasy. So I, in talking with all of these gentlemen, I, I called down two of them for you to hear our interviews today. We're going to start with Mike Hill, our creature designer and creator. Um, you know, Mike has previous experience working on Men in Black 3, Apocalypto, um, and he was really brought in to fine-tune the beauty of our creature in The Shape of Water. So take a listen to my interview with Mike Hill talking about how the creature came to be. Pleasure to meet you. Thanks for coming by. For this film, please. please. Oh, yeah. I, like I wouldn't be talking to you if I didn't oh, see it. Oh, okay. 
Well, let's see. To, to tell you, you can decide for yourself if I liked it. My first thought back to the studio after seeing it, I don't know, two months ago, was visually beauteous with haunting etherealism, languid beauty, sensually anticipatory edge. Love, wonderful. And Craig, you can write. Very good. Yeah, <laughs> lovely. So. You can write the sequel. So yeah. I liked it, huh? Yeah, very much. Good. This film, it is. It is exquisite. Isn't it? And the creature, number one, it's the most beautiful creature I've ever seen on screen. Oh, thank you. Okay. And, yeah, I was die hard, you know, with going all the way back to the 30, 20s, 30s, the monster movies, fans, uh-huh. yeah, all Me the, too. Mm-hmm. And I have Good. never seen anything as beautiful oh, that's as excellent. this creature. That's nice for you to say. But more than the beauty of the creature is the emotion that mm-hmm. we get, thanks to the facial expressiveness, which mm-hmm. I know a lot of that is VFX. Mm-hmm. But without that design, mm-hmm. without the sculpting mm-hmm. of the head, mm-hmm. of the features... It wouldn't mean anything. Yeah, I mean, the, the, it was a makeup, so it did move with his face. He could express. But the issue was that because we have these fish eyes around in front, you can, we couldn't... Um, if we'd have put mechanics in there to move those blinks and not, not do the CGI, as you said, mm-hmm. it made the head bigger. So to make the head bigger, it's always a mistake, what people do. So then you have to make the body bigger to support the head. And then we get rid of that sexy, lithe body that we wanted on yeah. you know, that athletic eel-like man almost. Once Sally Hawkins saw him, Mm -hmm. that spark, that connection, Mm -hmm. that delicate hesitancy of curiosity she had, it's like, you don't even see him as a creature. No. You see this as a love story. Yeah. That was our main director from Gimo. When Gimo first contacted me, his email was very brief. It was, (laughs) hey Mike, I want you to be a lead sculptor on the creature. I paced around the room a little bit because Gimo and I already had a business friendship where he would buy a lot of my artwork and I never worked on a movie with him and I was like, ah, oh, do, I, do I risk that, you know? It took me like two minutes. I was like, are you nuts? This is a creature from the movie you adore back in the day, as you said, mm-hmm. the, the Universal Monsters. And then um, Gimo del Toro. It's like, hey, you know, it's a match made in heaven. So I did a risk. I think I was standing on my head doing backflips when I wrote... Yes, of course, if you need me, you know. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah. It's a very sedate and calm in your response. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah, so it, yeah, it was it was very, very flattering for him to ask, ask me to come aboard. It was great. You know? Well, at what stage did you come into the picture? Because I know there were early mock-ups and early drawings. There was. And I know that Shane came on board. Mm-hmm. But I know that you are the head guy. Mm-hmm. You're the head guy. Okay, <laughs> You know, everybody yeah. talks about Mike being, being, you know, for the facial, for the head, for the... Mm-hmm. So, at what point did you come on? I, um... <clears throat> I... It's, how we, I don't know what time will be. We have a lot of... Okay. I, I, um... I was over at Gimel's house, and I saw a maquette right of, of, of this deal, man, this creature. And I didn't ask any questions, because I'm like, you know, I know the business. Don't ask too many questions, and you get no lies. And Gimo said, oh, this is my new... This is the maquette for this new creature the movie I'm doing. And under my breath, I thought, oh, God damn it, Gimo. I wish I could have had a go with that, you know? Um, and then two weeks later, he sent that email that said, hey, and his main director to me was Mike, I, I want you to give this thing a soul, you know? And I looked at the previous design, and though it was a wonderful design, to me it was, it was slightly monstrous a design. Mm-hmm. It'd be great in a different movie, but not particularly in this one, because of the relations that the creature has to have with Sally. 
I said, well, Gimo, no one's going to want to kiss a, a fish mouth, you know. So my so what I did for the design aspect is I started, did a sketch for Gimo. I started off with lips. I looked at a few. I googled handsome male models is what I did and found some male voluptuous lips. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started to build a face from there, you know. And obviously, I had to amalgamate man and fish, but you could look at him a strong jaw, just look at him a cleft, and still give him, you know, a nice, you know, bronze, you know, bust type, you know, profile, very, mm-hmm. very you know, architectural in its form. Um, again, it was basically to try and make a fishman appealing to, to anybody, I guess. Who, who well, I mean, there. I love the, the the idea of lips, and mm-hmm. every kid growing up for generations, you always played the game of fish lips. Right. Okay. Yeah. So everybody, you grow up as a kid expecting fish to have lips. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So of you do. it makes perfect sense. That's right. And and when we lean in to kiss somebody, we look at the lips. So the initial design had this big fish mouth, you know, which again was very nicely done, but I didn't think it fit with, with the story we were trying to tell. Especially when you're playing opposite Sally, who's so tiny and petite. That's right. And, yeah. And frag- with a fragility to her. Yes, that's right. And then, and then and then even though once Gimo had settled on the fa- like the face design I was going, I did put him on the body. I said, you don't give up. I'm not too keen on that body either. The way, again, it's wonderful, but not for this mother. So because it had a lot of plates, and, you know. And I said, if these two are going to get romantic, for want of a better term, he needs to be huggable. He needs to be holdable and, I guess, caressable. You know. So I said, can we strip him of this arm, this, this tough armor, and make him vascular? You know. What it, I see. What I said to Gimo is, and Gimo agreed because we're big fans of Boris Carlos Monster, mm-hmm. who's a skinny guy but very vascular. And I said that, you know, it was like, look, you don't have to be big and to look strong, you know, vascularity and tight muscles are as powerful as big bulky muscles. Mm-hmm. So, and that helped with us making him sexy, you know, making mm-hmm. him, again, very streamlined and and with no bulk. Did you look at any amphibious or any fish designs of construct of, of actual creatures to get any kind of ideas for, you, for that? You or? mean fabricated creatures or you mean real life creatures? Real, real ones. Oh yeah, I mean I looked at a lot of aquatic animals you know, and in fact the, the design of the face where I have this upper, the actual face is designed, I designed it twofold, one is to be able to go on and off easily the full mm-hmm. plate and glue that down and not have to blend it off too much which so takes ta- hours in the makeup chair and I knew we had to get the whole suit on him um so um, I looked at I saw I figured okay and also he has to eat a cat as you know and in the script he opened his mouth wide and I didn't want to go with the old school stretch and skin it's not real no. you can't do that you're going to inch so far so what, what piranhas do they had these plates and it's the plates that shift on each other so I made the face so kind of plated so when he opened his mouth rather than stretching it slides one from under the other Size. yeah and it also helped us with the blend line to get that makeup on and off as quick as we could to make it uh, more tolerable for Doug who really doesn't need that because he's the most professional man I've ever met for this stuff. I, uh, this, I think, is just the most incredible performance of his career. Oh, yeah, he's brilliant. You know, and, he, and he's just such a, I guess I'd say, a wonderful canvas to work on because he doesn't complain. He knows the ropes. He knows what he's got to do. You know, he'll, 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 he'll say this might be a bit uncomfortable or this might be, and we'll change it, you know, in pre-production. But generally, he doesn't complain and... Uh, it was an absolute honor to work with him, you know, and we became good friends on the phone. How challenging was it to find the right kind of material to make the suit out of? Because I know you've got a myriad of prosthetic materials available. Yeah. Certainly nowadays, yes. But we actually went old school. Guillermo was very adamant that he wanted foam latex for the, for the bodysuit. Um, we were trying to push, Shane and I were trying to push silicone as a whole body. 
because it has a nice translucency quality to it, which mm-hmm. phone latex is opaque. But Gimo was really didn't want to have a whole silicone body. And in hindsight, it would have been very heavy as well, very, very hot, more sweaty than he, even the foam suit was. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we did is, yeah, so the, the main part of the creature, the makeup and the whole body suit, which is actually not really a kick on it suit, but it's actually a body prosthetic. You know, he's strapped in that thing and he's glued into that thing. It's a whole body makeup. Um, so what we did is on the extremities, of the, obviously the fins and the claws and, you know, the, the quote-unquote... I put some gill, gills on his ears to represent ears, even though they weren't ears, just so that when we look at him, you associate mm-hmm. with the person, you can relate to it. You know, it's not too alien to us. We made all those parts in silicone because you get that translucency then with the light coming from behind and going mm-hmm. through them. Just like it does on our ears, a fish is real thin. And then what that does is it, 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 it makes you believe you're seeing this full organic creature because we can see through it even, mm-hmm. you know. So it, the main materials was, it was foam latex with silicone um, extremities, mm-hmm. I guess. You know, lighting is so important in mm-hmm. this film, as is color, mm-hmm. um, because of the very nature, especially of the laboratory scenes, uh-huh. where the creature spends most of the film, uh-huh. and the lighting that Dan designed Fantastic, in yeah. there. He's you wonderful. Know, what a nice guy. He was wonderful. You know, yeah. plus with that industrial, mm-hmm. industrialized setting yeah. that we're in, how did that impact the color scheme that you came up with? Plus the fact he's going to be in water. So, yeah. you know, are there colors you had to avoid so that he wouldn't totally meld with the water? Because I know we've got a lot of red and green and red mm-hmm. and green of pea in this film. Mm-hmm. As are blue. Well, there's only blasts of red. The only blasts. pinpoint moment, like the shoes and stuff. The shoes, her headband. Yes. The red jello blood. that Giles has, yeah. blood. Striking, yeah. So, I mean, it really comes across. And mm-hmm. likewise, the bright green, like bright mm-hmm. green jello. Color of the future. But then we have the water Mm -hmm. that, thanks to Dan's lighting, the water itself Mm -hmm. has different properties. And even in the VFX of water, we see the different hues of the cyans and the blues as the water moves. So I'm curious about how color affected the ultimate colors you came up with for the creature so he wouldn't just disappear. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. That's a good question. Um, Well, initially, the creature was painted over at Legacy and they came up with the color scheme there was a, they did a lot of designs of, of you know various incarnations of this, this, this creature's color and Gimo picked one the best one that he liked and that's what they, they did but when they took it to set and did some sh- shots of it you know some test shots it was more of a grayish colder color yeah and um, it, it wasn't reading right you know with the color use that Gimo wanted to use so he actually called me a bit panicked late one night I thought I thought I was done, you know, for the movie. <laughs> Mike, you know, I need to repaint that whole thing. And I'm like, what? You know, and I said, you're making my life hell, Gimo. He says, I know I am, but I don't care. Can you repaint? So we literally then, I had to scramble and repaint the thing from the ground up and come up with a whole new color scheme. So what I decided on is Gimo had some ideas. He'd sent pictures of salamanders and stuff. They had this broken up pattern that I used in certain areas. And then... Um, you know, the, the main thing for me was, I mean, he, we decided he wanted to, most of it to be black, you know, because it's sleek and fast and deadly and, and sexy again. Mm-hmm. Black, so black, oh, black looks good in anyone. Always right? sexy, yeah. yeah. So actually, I went for lunch at my t- local Thai restaurant and there was a fish tank and I saw a goldfish in there and he had this black, blue velvet back, but his underside mm-hmm. was this golden yellow. And I thought, that's it. So and thought it was kind of weird taking photographs on my phone of these fish in this tank. And no weird could... people photographing their food on plates. That's true. That's exactly true, yeah. And so I, um, at least I wasn't selfieing with it. You know, 
just a fish. Yeah. So I looked up that particular fish when I got back to my shop, and I went from there and said, okay, this is the color scheme, and there we go. And, we, and so I spent two weeks, two assistants painting the creature all over again from head to toe. I mean, he's just, just beautiful. Oh, thanks. Thank you. The color reminds me of Birkenstock just came out with this shoe okay. that they call this a multi-snake skin. Right. And it has all those same properties. Yeah. Of the creature, so that in light you get different tints. That's what we did. Any skin of it, you know, look at yourself, look at me. Anyone's skin, it's made up of layers. You can't just go in and put a bold color on. I mean, literally, there's no color that's solid. If you see the yellow, it's not just yellow. It's, there's ten colors there, and ten layers, mm-hmm. and ten speckles, and ten different masks to make that become look like one uniform hue mm-hmm. of color. But it's really not, and that's why the camera sees it as flesh. Mm-hmm. So you're right. I'm glad you noticed those textures because some of the scales we sculpted in from the shoulders areas down the rib, I believe, the sides of the legs. But some of the but some of them were just painted on, and that's so that. From, you know, light direction from one side, these ones will pick up. But on another side, when these might not, these will because they're painted. Well. And it was it was those kind of you know different mix and match to come up with the final creature. One funny story is is we never got to try the fully finished creature on Doug in the new paint scheme at all. You know, so the first day was the first day on set, and I'm, everyone's when we put him in, we're like, oh, this is beautiful. <laughs> Came all those in, and everyone's ooing and airing and you're feeling great. You know, you got you got this Mona Lisa walking on the set, and then the first thing, and I'm thinking, oh, is this going to be the scene? You know, when he stands up out of the water, and see him. Kim was like, no, he's kneeling down, put him in chains, and pour blood over him. And I was, I could have cried. It was like, again. That's the first thing you had to do. To <laughs> yeah. this beautiful work of art. So and we only had one suit at that stage as well. <gasps> we, eventually, we had four. Legacy made four suits mm-hmm. in total, but but originally we only had one for at least seven to ten days. I think it was. Oh my God. Yeah. So. We spent the whole night washing that suit out there and trying to dry that suit and get it ready for the next day. So, Gimo in hindsight said, yeah, that was kind of a bad thing to do on the first, but it worked out. You know, he, you know what, you throw people in the deep end and, excuse the pun, and um, yeah, <laughs> everything else seems simple after that. Did it impact your decisions at all? Because there are so many scenes where Doug is in the suit and he's actually sitting in that pool. Mm-hmm. So part of him is out on dry land, uh-huh. then in Eliza's apartment. Uh-huh. He's in dry land or halfway in the bathtub, but he's walking around. Yeah. So the fact that you needed a wet look and a dry look, mm-hmm. so to speak, did that also impact the ultimate finish? Well, you know, Gimo, um originally, he wanted the creature to not be glossy, he wanted it to be matte. Because a lot of things, you know, fish when they're out of water, they're not really shiny, they're matte. I, I was kind of, I figured he should be at least semi-sheeny to give us the impression that he's aquatic, you know. So the day that we actually sat him, kneeled him down on the, on the torture scene, as you saw in the movie, you know, to make the blood run, I started spritzing with water, and I started spritzing a bit more, and I started spritzing a bit more, and I kind of coaxed it in to make this thing look wet look all the time. Mm. So before every shot in the movie, we sprayed him down, yeah, with water. Every, I mean, that was one of the things, spritz! We went on wet him all the way over. Except for the um, the, under, the the dry for wet scenes, mm-hmm. which, as you know, is when he's meant to be underwater, but he's not really. Because again, if you look at a fish underwater, they don't look wet. Right. It, it, you know, he flattens out. You know, it's an optical illusion; it just flattens out. So those scenes, he wasn't quite as wet as, mm-hmm. as, as when he was walking around the apartment and stuff like that. That can impact your entire finish mm-hmm. lighting and 
Yes. But thankfully, you know, yeah, you're right again. Um, you know, if you put a sponge in water and you'd pull it out, the sponge looks darker because of the water. But it, it didn't really affect because the rubber was a rubber-based paint. Mm-hmm. The only issue that we really had is being in water 14 hours a day, the paint it wanted to lift off. So we were constantly repairing. Yeah, not damage to the suit. The suit was very you know, robust. It could handle it. But the paint? The paint was lifting. It was literally a, a layer that was coming off. So at the end of the day, end of the weekends... I spend most of my time repainting the things over and over and over and over. I'd say at least 20 times, yeah, I repainted that thing. So before she gives me the hook and drags me... Oh, this is a good one. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to ask you, I'm going to ask you, Mike, what did you personally take away from the experience of making this film that you can now take forward into future projects? I mean, you encountered new new technical problems... Mm -hmm. But also working with Guillermo for the first time on a film. You know, the, the, the main thing that I take from it is, it, it, I think it's the first time in my in my life that I actually felt like a, an artist. You can say you're an artist, but Guillermo makes you feel like a real artist, and he treats you like one, and he talks to you like one, and he brags about you like one. So I came away feeling that, that I was finally an artist after 47 years. You know? That's all? It, <laughs> yeah. only took, it only took 47 years? Just 47 years, yeah. You know, Because... Because I, I I hold him in such high regard as an artist himself, he knows this stuff better than we do. You know, you can't pull the wool over his eyes. He knows everything. So to have that kind of Gimo kids calling me the father of the creature, you know, to have that um, a flattery almost, you know, it, it, makes, it made me feel good. He was very kind, very generous, and I'm very proud to work with him. Can't wait for the next one. No one need the Wolfman. And that was the incredible Mike Hill. And as I said. Come Oscar nominations morning, just hold on to your hats because I think you're going to be hearing the names of Mike Hill, Louis Segura, Dennis Berardi, Shane Mahan, Paul Osterberry, and Dan Lawson get called out um, for The Shape of Water. So Mike gives you a little bit of an idea of what went into creating this creature that most have only seen on posters and in some TV spots thus far. Um, so because, let's see. It was a long interview, and I know we have Jared holding right now. So we're going to jump into the Old West and the Ballad of Lefty Brown. Before we do, let me just say I want to get a, give a shout-out to my friend Melissa Howland. We are movie geeks. Um, our, our illustrious boss is Facebook living the show on his page, Nick Federoff, F-E-D-E-R-O-F-F, on Facebook. If anybody wants to just take a peek. Uh, at the Facebook Live. Um, Melissa is, which is why I have to give her a big shout out. So thank you, M- Melissa. Um, but right now, let's let's bring on the fabulous writer-director and lover of the Old West, Jared. Hello, Jared. Hi, Debbie Lynn. How are you? I am fine. I am so thrilled that you are calling in today to talk about the Ballad of Lefty Brown. I'm always happy to talk about the Ballad of Lefty Brown. Well, I'm always happy to talk to you because you always you make these fabulous westerns, and I love, as you know, I love westerns. I mean, with your first one, Dead Man's Burden, your first shot out of out of the gate, beautiful, beautiful film. You brought in some old stalwarts like Loose Reigns, who I think you have in Lefty Brown, uh, and no, unfortunately, we weren't get... able to get loose <gasps> for Lefty. Uh, oh. Loose is a Montana guy. 
Uh, I know. Luce is a New Mexico guy, and we shot Lefty up in Montana. Uh, but Luce has been in every Western shot in New Mexico. I, I know. Think, which is incredible. I know. But, uh, you know, with Dead, Man, you, Dead Man's Burden, you also had Richard Real, and Richard has been in everything known to mankind. Um, he is. And I adore he, him. His face is still recognizable. But more so, with the ballad in Lefty Brown, not only do you bring in Sons of Anarchy's Tommy Flanagan to play U.S. Marshal Tom Hara, you get Peter Fonda and my one of my favorite guys, Bill Pullman, in the starring role as Lefty Brown. You have done you. Your cast is exemplary, exemplary, and what you have created, what you have written, is amazing. I think I told you and Bill, you know, this film is to Bill what the hero is to Sam Elliott, and what Lucky is to Harry Dean Stanton. Well, thank you. Bill was such a joy to work with. I mean, the entire cast was wonderful in the film, but Bill, um, you know, we had him part of this movie for a year before we started production and you know his spirit uh infuses the film um on every level uh he he's an incredible talent and i'm so glad i got to work with him on this film i mean i just can't believe that you got bill that and you got peter i mean that that is you know western legacy come to life for you well you know it's this this film is so tied to the Western legacy. You know, we mm-hmm. wanted it to feel like it fit into that tradition that started with Stagecoach and spread through everything from the Searchers to Rio Bravo, you know, those classical Westerns. Um, so it was really important to both find, cast it with actors who felt like they could belong in those films or had ties to those films, or uh, and the characters really are those archetypes come to life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the Battle of Lefty Brown is a it's an incredible character study, not only as to individual men, but as to the way of life and the code that men walked by in the Old West. And not many people can embrace that or understand it. You have an incredible understanding of that. So I'm curious, Jared, what led you to your love for and affinity with Westerns? Well, you know, as a New York uh, Jewish guy who started loving Westerns as a kid, um, I started watching it with my father, who uh, is from Greece, because that's what they had in Greece when he was growing up, were a lot of Westerns. Um, and for me, I think what appeals to me about the genre, it is very much this place where mythology and history meet. It's this idea of what, America sees itself as or wants to see itself as, but also the place where a lot of the really brutal things we've done as a culture exist. Um, and it is, is that gives us a great canvas for telling stories. You know, it really is. So now what led you to this particular story, The Ballad of Lefty Brown? Something that is very standout is you take a character, Bill's character of Lefty Brown, who is typically, he's the sidekick. He's the unsung hero. He's, he's the stuntman. He's the guy taking the falls. But he has an undying loyalty to, you know, who, who would be the leading man, typically in a film. But here, you take this sidekick and you make him the leading man. 
So I find this very fascinating, how you, how you came up with this and designed it. Well, I was so interested in that sidekick character from watching these old John Wayne westerns, where he always had this sidekick, whether it was Walter Brennan, Andy Devine, Gabby Hayes. I mean, the list is endless. Um, but you had this character who was always laughed at by the audience, you know, in in um, Red River, Walter Brennan has lost his teeth in a gambling match. Like, he's a joke, yet he's the guy who is with John Wayne at all turns. He's the guy who's there to watch his back when everything goes to hell. You know, in, R- in Red River, he's the one who, when John Wayne is about to get shot down, he throws him the rifle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really interested in this dichotomy of a character who we are laughing at, who the other characters are laughing at, yet the hero relies on um, to such a powerful degree. And I wanted to try to find the human being behind that sort of character. Mm-hmm. So once you, you decided that's how you wanted to approach it, how did you come up with the mechanics of the story? Because the story, I think, is just fascinating. <laughs> And you give us plenty of, we've got a huge story twist in there. You've got some great commentary that is as applicable today as it was back in the 1800s. So how did you then go about developing your plot points and the storyline? And you have a very strong woman in there with the face of Kathy Baker as Sarah. Oh, Laura. Yes. Uh, she is, um, you know, for me, once I knew I wanted to make this movie about a side, that sidekick archetype, uh, I, wanted, I decided, well, the only way this character is ever going to get into the spotlight is if the hero is killed. Um, so I knew the story was going to have to be the hero being killed um, and the sidekick stepping out of the shadow to hunt down that killer. Um, but then... As I sort of thought about the world, I realized that there were a lot of these sort of archetype, archetype characters that I could play with. You know, um, you look at, you know, Rio Bravo for sort of a classical example. You know, you have Walter Brennan's sidekick character, John Wayne's hero. But then you have Dude, played by Dean Martin, who is mm-hmm. the drunk sheriff um, who's constantly uh, uh, fight, suffering with alcoholism. And that sort of character became the Tommy Flanagan's uh, Tom Hara character in this. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the young kid, you have the, sort of this young guy in Rio Bravo, it's Ricky Nelson, but in The Man Who Shot Liberty Valens, it's like Jimmy Stewart, the guy who becomes a protege of the John Wayne character, who is also sort of uh, either, who in my mind often sort of me- believes in law and order. And, you know, that became uh, Jim Caviezel's uh, Governor Pierce, as you know, what happens to the man to Jimmy Stewart's man who shot Liberty Valance as he gets older? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then the female character is interesting because in so many of these westerns, uh, the woman, the female character, sometimes even feels like she's out of a different movie, but usually it's she's really just played as a love interest, right. and even the strong women in a lot of these, uh, she's like a screwball character plucked, you know, plucked out of New York and dropped into the Old West. Mm-hmm. So um, 
I was really sort of inspired by uh, Marianne Goodnight, who was the wife of Charles Goodnight, who is basically who um, John Wayne's character in Red River is based on. Mm -hmm. And she's this woman who uh, lived on a ranch surrounded by men. She had a best friend who was a woman, who, and she saw her once a year. Um, and so she basically lived in this, in this man's world. And then when her husband died at a relatively young age, she didn't remarry. She kept the ranch and ran it, um, successfully for decades. Um, and so as Kathy, you know, as I was thinking about the character and as I was talking to Kathy Baker about the character, we really sort of honed in on, uh, Marianne as a model for who we wanted Laura Johnson to be. Oh, I mean, because it, she's fabulous, fabulous in the film. And, of course, I have to I have to mention one of my favorite castings, Diego Joseph as the young Jeremiah. What an incredible performance from him. He was a fun one. He was uh, such a uh, great actor and such a fun presence to have on set. You know, we had to look at. I think my casting director looked at 100 actors, and then we narrowed it down to 20 that I looked at. Um, and I remember the first time I saw Diego, he was this little beanpole in an oversized <laughs> cowboy hat and boots that didn't quite fit right. Um, but he had the earnestness in that moment that Jeremiah had, the sense that, like, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to be a cow Western hero, to be the cowboy. And there was something almost, it was both endearing and... You can see the artifice of it in a good way. Mm -hmm. um, that felt like the natural artifice of it, um, and you know, I, I just fell in love with him as an actor, and we worked together to really, you know, rehearse the role and um, get the performance. Oh, and, and it was fun. The, oh, I was going to say it was really fun because Bill and Diego also sort of adopted their role in the movie with Bill becoming a bit of a mentor uh, to Diego uh, in front of the camera and behind it. I got to tell you, if you're going to have a mentor, Bill Pullman is a good one to have. Oh, he's a great one to have. So now once you have your, your story constructed, you have your puzzle pieces together, how do you approach this visually? Because once again, your visuals, David McFarland, your cinematographer here, absolutely beautiful. You're shooting on Super 35 in natural light. I'm number one. I'm thrilled you're shooting on film. Um, I'm thrilled so many more directors now are. Everybody was saying film is dead, and then a few kept championing it and saying no, film is not dead. Film is not dead, and more and more people are are going back to film. And you elected to shoot film for Lefty Brown. So I'm curious as as to your now your visual approach. Now that you got your mechanics with your casting and your story in place, how do you then? approach your visual tonal bandwidth and constructing that? Well, um, you know, it's a lot of working very closely with my uh, cinematographer, Dave McFarland. And, you know, we knew we were going to shoot film. That was uh, sort of established early on because I mm -hmm. film gives a depth and a texture um, to the genre that I think uh, digital has yet to replicate. Um, we wanted to do two perf 35 because anything like anamorphic would be too heroic. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, this, this film had to feel very natural and down to earth, um, like lefty as a character. And then it became a lot of conversations about how do we create something that feels both epic and intimate at the same time. Um, 
And that we sort of concluded that what we needed to do was always make sure we saw horizons and scope of the world and made the land a character in the story, mm-hmm. but also tell it in a way that we're really with our characters. You know, we're seeing action from their point of view. Um, we are emotionally with them as things, as events are happening to them, um, rather than sort of far away and outside of it. You know, I have to say, at around the 44-minute mark of the film, you've got an incredible shootout. And the POV, we're eye level. We are immersed. So as you're watching this, I mean, it's as if we are in the shootout. We're not looking from afar. It's all eye level. Those bullets are whizzing right past. You know, guns are being aimed exactly as we and as the audience would be doing it if we were in the film. And I I just love the fact that you did that. Thank you. We were really trying to get the chaos of that gunfight. Um, it was so much fun to shoot. Uh, but yeah, we just wanted to be in it with our characters and have the audience almost feel what they're feeling and the surprises and the terror and the excitement of it all. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very visceral experience. And it's because of the way you elected to maintain your POV. And, you know, I think so, so many directors would have opted for crane shots or, you know, a voyeuristic approach. But, no, having you smack dab in there, it really enhances the experience of this film. Well, I always sort of feel like it's more interesting to see a, the reaction of a person realizing they get hit by a bullet than a bullet actually entering them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because what does it do to you to realize that, like, as a the feeling and the sense of, like, a you're shot, you know, the surprise, the shock, the fear, the pain, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, to have a plan to be going into a, t- you know, you've worked out, you've come up with a plan and you're suddenly it goes upside down. Um, you know, I want to show the emotion of that, mm-hmm. you know, and the feeling and what you have to do when your world, go- your plan goes upside down, not sort of be outside of it. Well, you, def- you definitely show emotion with the bullet removal scene. I can tell you that much. We... That, was a, that was a fun one. That was a fun one. <laughs> we get the full brunt of emotion when somebody's having a bullet removed. It's... Oh, yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of screaming. And yes. it, was, uh, it, it was very intense to shoot. And, you know, that was one of those things that we were in the edit room, and we had cut it, like, four different ways, and we couldn't quite get it right. And then we realized... We needed to cut it around, about the bullet. Like, this is the story of the bullet coming. This scene is the story of a bullet getting taken out of a person. Mm-hmm. You know, and everything else has to be secondary to that bullet. Is it going to get out or is it not getting out? Yeah, I mean, it works. It works beautifully. <laughs> you know, this is the beauty. Well, of, thank you. This is the beauty of post-production. You know, how much... Let me jump to your editing for, for a minute, Jared. Uh, because when you were shooting... How much coverage shot, How much coverage are you actually getting while you're shooting that you then have to play with in editing? Or is the film shot pretty much exactly what you think you're going to end up with? Well, we didn't have a whole lot of time to make this movie, so we uh, really didn't have a ton of coverage. We, we shot, um, you know, we would do one, one or two takes, um, but we would shoot what we wanted, the way it would cut together. Um, mm-hmm. I'm always editing in my head. So then it's a matter of when we get to post, we don't have a lot of options. The film has to cut a certain way, but it becomes about 
how are we crafting those cuts and how are we crafting the rhythm and the beats of it? My editor, Terrell Gibson, um, you know, I think one of the, his greatest strengths as an editor is understanding, you know, how a cut uh, enhances the emotion of a moment or a scene mm-hmm. um, and making sure that those beats and those feelings come across and being patient enough uh, to let that happen. Mm-hmm. No, the editing is wonderful because you really, you let the film breathe. You you give us moments to breathe and to embrace and to understand the world that we're entering. But then you also know when to ratchet, ratchet it up and also when to hold, you know, get that emotion. Let that emotion flow. Let us connect with Lefty Brown <coughs> and understand what he's thinking, what he's feeling. Because this is all about what Lefty is feeling in his pursuit of justice for his friend. Well, it's a coming of age story mm-hmm. um, for, you know, for a 63 year old cowboy. So uh, one of the things I think when we were editing, it was like making sure those coming of age story beats are really hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's that meant seeing him make the decisions that are pushing him forward on his journey. Mm-hmm. Um, and those decisions don't come easy. So you have to have patience. Um, and let, as Lefty is wrestling with them, let the audience see that, mm-hmm. um, which will then also sort of contrast when we hit those moments where, you know, things are more intense and more visceral, um, and actually, I think, make the visceral even stronger. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, your location is so key here. The vistas that we see, the the brush, the shrubbery, the trees... All of this is very key to not only developing this world, but it comes into play with the various plot points that are playing out. What led you to Bannock, Montana, which is where you shot this? Um, Well, I actually fell in love with Bannock um, when I saw it. uh, I was flown out there by the Montana Film Commission, and they drove me around to look at a bunch of different towns, and it was the middle of December, so Bannock looks nothing like it does in the movie. We showed up. And it was covered in snow uh, in the middle of nowhere, and it was magical because you had this almost perfectly preserved western town that was the first territorial capital of Montana that at one point had 25,000, 30,000 people living there, um, that the popula- and that was the 1860s, and the population dropped within 20 years, and then by the 1970s, two people were living there. Um, and it was a state park that had never been filmed before. So uh, that always sort of appeals to me. I, I, I don't, I like uh, places that feel new and fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was about, all right, we found Bannock, and then we need to find the ranch house and the rest of the sets around that spot. Mm-hmm. No, well, you did an amazing, amazing job with that. I'm curious, were you shooting, because you have some night scenes, were you shooting night for oh, night, yeah. day, night for night, day for night? Night for night. Night for night. Because yes, the, we... f- the film opens, you know, it opens with a night scene, and I mean, it's just beautiful. The inky, the inky blue-black texture that you get, it just absolutely, it just uh, pops. I like night uh, shooting at night because the way light plays in the darkness mm-hmm. uh, is so can really up the tension and can really um, create a mood and a feel uh, and a feeling. So, for example, that opening shot—I think that was we were shooting at midnight 
Um, we, that was a full overnight. Um, you know, getting the last shot as we raced the sun coming up. Um, you know, so it was all night for night. We never tried to fake it. Um, we really tried to embrace it. Oh, we did okay. actually shoot some nights during the day. I mean, some day scenes at in the middle of the night, some interiors. Well, you know, it's, it's interiors, you know, okay, we can, <laughs> we can get away with that. But, you know, the beauty of, and, you know, being up in, a, in you know, with landscape like in Bannock, you know, it's not like being in the city where in nighttime you don't realize it's nighttime because of all the lights everywhere. Uh, you know, you really get to embrace what actually is night. Yeah, that was really important for all our locations. Um, you want them to be isolated. You don't want to have that light pollution coming in. You want to be able to put the camera in pretty much any direction and not see uh, modernity. Mm-hmm. Um, to be honest, Montana allows for that a lot. I mean, it really yeah. is the frontier uh, unmarred by civilization. Yeah, and it, and it's funny because I think of that with light with your film and then... I recently spoke with the sound designer for The Beguiled, and instead of light issues, he had the uh, modernity of sound that then had to be stripped from the entire film because they even they shot outside New Orleans. But even yeah. though they were outside, it wasn't far enough away that you still didn't have some of present-day, you know, orally appearing. So they had to strip every bit of that sound out of a film. Well, I remember on um, sound is something I'm so uh, obsessive about that, you know, as we were leading up to prep, I kept wanting to talk multiple times to our sound, uh, our, our wonderful sound team. And, you know, I think my line producer at one point commented after we finished that, like, she'd never had a director so insistent about, like, making sure every sound was incorporated into every conversation. Um, and because of, exactly what uh, the Beguiled uh, dealt with. Yeah, and and when you're set in the 1800s, in 1860, you don't have all of the noisy ambient sound that we take, that obscures so much of what's in our daily life today. Back then, you know, setting down a, a tin cup, setting down a bottle on a, on a rough-hewn wood tabletop, you're going to hear that. You're going to hear it as with the heel toe of a foot going on the wood floor in a bar. You're going to hear it as a coin is laid down or when somebody spits in a spittoon. Um, there's not enough noise that, to obscure that. So that is very important. And I'm, for one, I'm so glad you paid attention to that because I would have been like, well, I don't hear it. I don't hear it. You know, <laughs> I would have been very, very upset. To not you got to hear all those things. You have to, or else you don't. You know, sound it carries. Uh, people speak softer. Noises. You have to be extra quiet. Um, you know, and, and that that quietness, I think, feeds into the lifestyle there, at least comparative to what it is today. Mm-hmm. You know, and something that you have done beautifully, working with your composer Scott Salinas. I, I mean, I'm a fan of Scott's work anyway, after what he did for Matt Heineman on cartel, his documentaries, Cartel Land, City of Ghosts. This is the first score I've heard by Scott that is for a narrative film. And I have to say... Uh, Scott did Dead End's Burden, too. Oh, he did? Okay. All right. Yeah. But this is... Uh, the use of piano 
some banjo, guitar. I mean, it's the instrumentality is fascinating. I'm curious, what were you looking for? What were your conversations with Scott like? Um, so <clears throat> we wanted it to mostly feel, uh, we wanted to uh, strip down, um, and then that could build to, we wanted to create something that could play very, that could play very stripped down, but could also build up to a full orchestra mm-hmm. as necessary. And, you know, we want, we sort of were talking very much about themes, mm-hmm. how we wanted the music to be based in like lefty's story and thematically her. So you could hear the same music different ways throughout the movie. Um, and that led actually to the development of Lefty's theme, which is the piano at the cabin scene. Um, and that raw music that's actually in the movie is Scott's first, first recording of Lefty's theme on piano that he sent me. Um, hey, I think I got it. And we laid it into the movie, and it hasn't changed uh, since then. You know, we, he, he was like, I can clean it up for you if you want. And I was like, nope. I want to keep that raw you playing the piano in, like, your studio, just, you know, everything, the imperfections, because it's so led to the music, to the, to the feeling of the film. Oh, I mean, I think it's, it's just fabulous. I really, really loved it, especially the use of the piano. It, it, it really, it just, it, sp- it spoke to me. It really did. Now, every... Well, thank you. It was, it sh- it, I hope, you know, Scott and I, you know, really love just like when we can play one instrument that it speaks to an audience so you know now i've got to ask you jared because you are such a lover of the western genre who are some of the directors that really influenced you and your approach to entering this genre yourself um you know the the ones that i've that are, have been very influential to me, you know, John Ford, mm-hmm. um, you know, the formalism of John Ford, how he uses the land, the character, um, in all his films. Um, I think the Sam Peckinpah, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm not, you know, which is, I know a weird thing to say because this isn't a gratuitously violent movie, but, um, Sam, the way he can marry violence and lyricism, um, and humanity, it's truly exceptional. Um, and I think, you know, I, you mentioned we've been talking about the action sequences earlier. I think those were very much inspired by, like, the way he plops his characters right in the heart of these uh, of action. Um, Sergio Leone, mm-hmm. uh, the operatic nature of the genre, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think is really important and has influenced it a lot. Um, I'm really inspired by Clint Eastwood's uh, minimalism you know, go get what he needs in his sort of style of filmmaking. And there is something uh, so beautiful in his simplicity. Mm-hmm. You know, what I, I was also picking up in your work, you know, between Dead Man's Burden and now The Battle of Lefty Brown, you know, Raoul Walsh, you know, known for action, Western action. Mm-hmm. And I, in the way you execute your action sequences, not necessarily the violence that Peck and Paul brings, but the action and the interaction. And I, that's something that you do exceptionally well. And I see shades of Walsh there in that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's actually a really good uh, reference because I, I, I love Raul Walsh as a filmmaker. Um, you know, it's funny. I, He's like one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, I wasn't really impressed with everything he's done, 
but I've also uh, I didn't necessarily reference him for this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, I think his language. You know, I, you know, I remember really loving like Dark Command. Um, you know, as a Western way back when, but like it wasn't one I looked at as a reference point. But I think his style is so sort of geared into my understanding of cinema mm-hmm. and action that uh, I think it was almost a subconscious influence. <laughs> and of course, your story structure is so akin to what Delmar Daves brings. Um, 310 to Yuma, yeah. Broken Arrow. Uh, it's, you know, that's the first thing I think of when I see your work. I think of Del from a story standpoint uh, with your characters. I think of Delmar's work. Um, oh, yeah, totally. I mean, he's such a character-driven. So he uses genre and character in such a unique way mm-hmm. that his, his stories are just, you know, so, I mean, they're, they're some of the best out there. Oh. Um, and I definitely find, like, like I would never say, uh, I, I don't want to sound like, oh, I want to follow in his footsteps, but I want to follow in his footsteps. <laughs> hey, you following? You keep following in your own footsteps because you're doing one hell of a great job, Jared. Um, Thank you. I I can't wait to see what you do next. But you know, unfortunately, we are all out of time today. I could talk to you forever, as you well know. Um, but where? Uh, Lefty Brown opens Friday. Where opens all, Friday. Where all can people see it? So if you're in New York, um, you can catch it at the uh, Village East. And uh, Bill Pullman, I'll be, I will be there on actually Friday night to do some live Q&As. And then in L.A., it'll be the Lemley NoHo, um, and we'll be there on Saturday night. It's also going to be available on iTunes and On Demand. Wonderful. And I hope that we'll get to see a DVD Blu-ray with some director's cut extras. Oh, yeah. There's a fun director cut extras, including Bill Pullman being beat up by his own son. Oh, God. yes, because he made this a whole family affair. Um, oh, yeah. With the kid, with a, what, a nephew and, and the kids. So No, all his kids. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah, are there. Oh, Jared, thank you so, so much. And I hope you'll come back on the show again. It was my pleasure. I always love talking to you, Debbie Lynn. Oh, Jared, thank you so much, everybody. Battle Lefty Brown uh, thank this you. Friday. Bye-bye, Jared. Bye. And that was Jared Moshe talking the Ballad of Lefty Brown in theaters Friday. That is all the time we have. We're already two minutes over. So Pam will probably do something weird and wondrous on the actual podcast edit for Adrenaline. Uh, I won't do anything weird and wondrous for the for the podcast on other sites where the show plays but until next week friday star wars after you see star wars go see the ballad of lefty brown uh and until next week i'm debbie elias this is behind the lens (laughs) 